nobody tells you about what an enormous and satisfying pleasure it is to be in a book and know that it's going to be a book, right? Whether it's going to be published or not, to actually be there and know that it's going to turn out to be a thing, a whole thing. Nobody teaches you that. Nobody reveals that secret, you know, of what it feels like to be making that thing. It must be like what, say, my grandfather and his brothers felt when they were building houses. They built all of the family's houses, right? That you start with your foundation and you know it's going to be a thing. Yeah. So that's what I get right now. Um, That's why I have to continue doing it. Um, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, like, well, are you making a living off this? Are you making money off it? Well, you know, fiction writers don't really make a whole lot of money unless they're with a bit, very big publisher, things like that. And who knows? People who are producing the books are making money, right? Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, that's sort of beside the point. I've got to do this. JCV Art Studio. My name is Joanna, and I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. And today, I'm thinking of all the podcasts I've recorded, and I have complained about rain. Today, it is sunny in Shamanus, in BC. Oh, it's like 20 degrees Celsius, which works up to be 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. And given my American listeners, that may not seem hot, but oh my God, we are out with t-shirts on. (laughs) Oh, it sure makes a difference. It sure makes a difference. So going from sunshine, we get to talk to, and you get to listen to my conversation with multi-published author of novels and short stories as well She's a professor at George Mason University. Laura Ellen Scott is with me. And Laura likes writing stories with dark themes and quirky characters. Um, Now, you see where I was going with the opposites? I've got sunshine, and we're going to talk about dark themes and quirky characters. Okay. (laughs) She she was born and raised in northern Northern Ohio. And I have to give a shout out to the Ohio Ohio listeners. I see you in my analytics. And Laura currently listens in Fairfax, Virginia. Today, we're going to talk about the third novel in her new royal mystery series, which is scary, which is creepy, 
which is intense. One night I had a nightmare and I will never forget, Laura, we have the Stanley, you know, the Stanley Cup playoffs going on. The only Canadian team that's no longer in it anymore was Edmonton. And I couldn't watch the hockey game because that was intense. And I'm reading your book and it is intense. And my spouse says to me, you look so serious. What's wrong? And I'm like, it's this book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Laura, please, that is all compliments to your writing and your story. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. I am going to like... um dine out on that for for weeks and weeks and weeks i love that kind of feedback uh it's it thank you so much for having this um you know uh normally i'm considered a funny writer but these books were not very funny so i you know this is a whole different turn for me interesting yeah and you were so pleasant and happy and it's like wow what she writes (laughs) (laughs) so okay okay i don't want to put you on the spot here no problem problem I had to ask because I was on your website. Um, let's just to get the vibe of this podcast going here. And I must ask you, because you mentioned in your on your website mm-hmm. that you, as you're writing, you try to hide from the Mothman. <laughs> and I was wondering if that was similar to when my sisters and I were saying that we were hiding from the boogeyman. Absolutely. I would say that's absolutely the case. Mothman is one of those more localized monsters. You know, every sort of place, like every place has its own legendary monster. Now, Boogeyman, that's like universal, right? Uh, But Mothman is particular to West Virginia. Um, And we have a cabin there, which sounds very grand, but it's not. It's a little tiny cabin on uh, five rocky, hilly acres. um, And Mothman is a monster that I think it's first uh, becomes part of, of uh, West Virginia lore, maybe in the 60s. Okay. And it's this sort of shabby man-like figure, all dark with red eyes and big raggedy moth-like wings. Now, when you say Mothman, that's not very threatening, is it? <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, great guy. You're a Mothman. That's awesome. <laughs> but it's their monster. And it's it's one of those monsters that emerges uh, with a weird connection to UFOs, right? Ooh. So Mothmen are, um, Mothmen, uh, Mothman rather, it has sort of like old God kind of connections, right? It has a sort of, sort of feels like it comes from, from long ancient folklore, but it also has this, it comes up, rises during the paranoia about UFO and technology and future and that sort of thing. So it's an interesting combination. That is, wow. Okay. And my, my friend who also has a cabin up there, she's a folklorist. So she's Mothman crazy. And so we talk about Mothman all the time. (laughs) That's great. That's like, God, yeah, that's great. Okay. So before we get into your book, the other thing I was curious about was your point of view with regards to one of your blog posts. And um, you have very interesting blogs. And I, I was... Which I haven't kept up for a while, but... Oh, hey, you're an author. I mean, how many of us are, are like... Well, I think especially during the pandemic, I let it slide, but I'm, I'm excited to get back to it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, in, on your website, you mentioned you like reading and watching true crime. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a blog deciphering like the presentation of true crime, like on TV. Okay. But then later 
so people know I'm just, I'm, 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 I hope it doesn't look like I'm cherry picking, but this last paragraph grabbed my attention and you write, you'll think it's strange for me to say this, but beware the storyteller in a time when information has become opt out rather than opt in. We've never been more powerful. We live in the misty gaps between facts where it is easiest to grab your attention and hold it. Now, I think I know what I know what my perception of that statement was was, but I was wondering if you would care to explain that. Okay. So, um I think I was specifically responding to uh the staircase okay. documentary, Michael Peterson case, um okay. because there was we watched you know, we watched that whole thing and we watched the follow-up series as well. And I became really fascinated with the way he was talking about uh, what he, what he says happened, what he thinks could have happened, what, and including lots of speculation, that sort of thing. And he often drifts into a kind of almost omniscient point of view. Okay. And just, if I could interrupt, for those who don't know what the staircase is about, what, what was that about? So Michael Peterson is a, um, Michael Peterson's case is fairly famous in that his, um, one night after having uh, wine with his wife by the pool, she goes inside in the early evening. This is part of their routine. And then um, when he finally goes in, he's discovered that she is at the bottom of some steps and she is dead. All right. And uh, the truth about whatever happened that evening has never been very clear. And it involved a bunch of uh, bad forensic uh, investigation It involved a bunch of, um, speculation about his past. There were, there was a, a, an interesting sort of unexplained death in his past. That was a very similar kind of accident, things like that. So, yeah. so it's a case where you don't really know what's going on or what has gone on, but where it's a very, very, and, and, and he is in, I believe he's still in prison now. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an ongoing sort of discussion in true crime about what really happened. And at one point, somebody theorized that, you know, an owl had, somehow pushed her down the stairs. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's a lot of wild, wild storytelling. But yeah. his own, his own um, storytelling doesn't, at least in these documentaries, doesn't appear to come from a very visceral place. And okay. he seems to be trying to imagine all the possibilities, which I can see a rationalization there. But when I listen to him, I hear a person who is being creative. And I think that's, oh, a, you'll, you'll relate to this, I'm sure, that okay. when you talk to writers, yeah. you know, they have another mode of communication, not just the purely informational or emotional trade back and forth, but they also have a place where they are, you know, creating possibilities on the spot as part of their conversation. And that's what I heard in okay. all of those episodes was, was him positioning himself um, in a place where he was saying something extremely interesting, but I didn't feel like it actually was always his experience. Okay. And I know we call that lying, yeah. Um, but if that's too simple, right? Yeah. I think it's you know, because you can feel it when you're telling a story about something yeah. and you're coming up and trying to answer all the possible questions that might be asked of you before they're even asked, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can you can see that creative activity going on in a person, yeah. right? 
And that's what I was smelling about that. And I thought, wow, how could you actually ever get the truth out of a fiction writer? <laughs> if they were, you know, and narrative is very important. We have those catchphrases, right? We have, uh, oh, they are trying to control the narrative or, yeah. um, oh, let's tone down the rhetoric, yeah. right? We have those things that that people in news and media, those phrases people use all the time. But they have really fairly deep, complex meanings. Yeah. And especially, and you said you, you, you had experience with the court system and things like yeah. that, um, especially now that we're seeing the, we're, we're seeing more and more information about what actually sways a jury, yeah. uh, what con- what constitutes an expert, right? Yeah. We're learning a whole lot about that stuff yeah. that is absolutely chilling. Yeah. And so it comes down to who can tell the best story. Yeah, okay. And you yeah. know the people who can do the best tell the best stories are fiction writers and actors, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it. it's interesting because I know sometimes when I see a news story let's say about a crime um, uh, or I'll see um, someone, how do I say this? Let's say a, let, it doesn't even have to be a crime. Let's say this, you have a suspicious situation and someone is being interviewed. Do things, I'll, when I listen, I'll be, I'll, you know, I'll listen and my husband will be, will be listening and I'll say, okay, so what is this person not saying, yeah. right? Yeah. And then also sometimes when you have, I find in, and I don't want to go down politics, but I find yeah. with politics, you know, when they have those, whether they're scrums or press yeah. You know, yeah, junk, whatever they have, where, you know, you got the speaker and then you've got the people behind, right? And I'll say to my husband, I'll be like, okay, listen to what he's saying, but watch the people behind them him mm-hmm. or her or her, right? right? Both watch with their reactions, you know, and just, that's what I like doing. And it's like, okay, now what's really going on? Okay. <laughs> Anyways. And when you have a person who wants to be so in control of the story that they don't allow you space to interpret in real time, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's a big red flag. Now, the reason why I'm so sensitive to that, right, is not just because uh, I'm observing the same kind of moves that you are, right? Yeah. Um, the reason I'm sensitive to that is because I am the kind of person who believes everyone. Okay. Right. When they first say something to me, I believe them. And that's a terrible position for somebody who teaches at a university because, you know, yeah, I believe you had nine grandmas die last week. Yeah. And that's why you didn't get your assignments in on time. I always just, so I have to really, I have to really interrogate myself every time okay. somebody is telling me something really effectively. Okay. So I'm, also at war with my yeah. storytelling impulse in a sense, just to protect myself. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad we, we, we talked about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in your book, and I, you know, I, uh, the Canadians coming out on from me, I apologize. I didn't, I didn't even introduce the title. It's blue oh. Billy. Okay. <laughs> okay. I beginning. should have done that. I should have gotten there. <laughs> so blue Billy. I believe it's the third in your new Royal mystery series. Um, And what I like is you tie in a university crime program with the corrections and industry to your characters. And I was wondering, how did you come up with that idea? Like what was the, what if that like, because that's cool. Yeah. Well, um, okay. This might be a little bit long, but I I hope you'll bear with me here. Um, (laughs) 
I got my coffee. <laughs> my ideas for stories uh, are just about a bunch of different things that sort of stick with me and they sort of sort of, sort of sneak up on me and then join forces. All right. Okay. So um, as a child, I grew up very close to a college town. I, I grew up in Brimfield, Ohio, okay. uh, which is very right next door to Kent State University. Um, and I was obsessed with the university to the extent that I quite often ditched school to go to the library there, spend the day at the library. Like, well, they have a 12 story library. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, and so I was always really impatient to get us, get out of public school and go to go to the university as soon as possible. Um, and so there's, there was that sort of literally looming, right? 12 story library, literally looming. Um, but you know, also other things that I probably not other kids would have been exposed to as much. Um, so my uh, father was incarcerated a few different times, a couple different times um, uh, for the longest periods of time at uh, Chillicothe prison in uh, Athens, Ohio, which is in Southern Ohio. Okay. Um, and, um, and my uh, sister was also um frequently institutionalized for mental health issues, right? Mm -hmm. So as a really young person, I had a lot of experiences with those literal institutions, right? Okay. And it was, I'm not saying, oh, I'm not saying for anybody to pity me or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was just a fact of life. There was not gonna, not everybody was gonna be at every at every Thanksgiving, yeah. right? A lot of adult for uh, adult stuff for a yeah. young person to cope with, yeah. But I was fortunate in that in that my family was fairly frank about it, okay. right? But and the frankness allowed us actually not to dwell okay. too much, right? And not try not to judge that much either. Yeah. You know. Um, so those things were there right at the beginning when I was very young. Okay. Um, when I went to college and then grad school, after college, I did go to Kent State. Yeah. <laughs> after college, um, my uh, partner and I, we moved to Athens, Ohio, because that's where he was going to go to grad school, right? Okay. Athens is just an hour away from Chillicothe. Okay. And one of the jobs he got was adjuncting at Chillicothe, okay. right? Now, Athens is also a college town, a legit college town, and we don't have many of those anymore, you know, yeah. um, where Ohio University is, yeah. uh, beautiful, beautiful place. But also in Athens, Athens has a gigantic what they called, what they used to call the Athens Lunatic Asylum. Wow. Okay. And um, do you know what a Kirkbride building is? Um, no. All right. So it's from the 19th century when they decided they weren't going to just lock up mentally ill people in cells. And they decided that they were going to open things up. And a Kirkbride, Kirkbride is a, a, a I believe, a physician who, who created this design of a much more open, almost like dormitory space. Okay. Right. So it has a main building and then it has what we literally call bat wing. Uh, oh, wow. structures coming off. Now, this was supposed to be a happy, open, sunny place, but immediately we start adopting that architecture as being like a, a site of horror, right? You can see that yeah. building in your head, right? Yeah. Um, so there's a big structure like that. I think the last use of it now was like for an art gallery, things like that. But that was looming, literally stuck on the hillside in Athens. Oh, geez. You know, so you yeah. had, again, I had these institutions all around me and it felt like they're getting steps closer to me right God, yes. <laughs> so um then fast forward to the point where my publisher says well what do you want to write next after uh, I'd written for the first book for Panamoon Publishing was the Juliet yeah um what do you want to write next I said, well I want to try writing um crime stories I want to try writing a murder mystery things like that and she goes well go ahead give it a shot 
And at that point, we had just launched a BFA in creative writing at George Mason University. Now, that's a really structured sort of intensive program in creative writing. Okay. We were responding to the fact that so many young people were coming to our um, uh, preview events. People who are 16, 17 years old saying, I've written two books. What are you going to do for me in your creative writing program? You know, and we thought, wow, you know, this is a we had not we had been uh, doing the serious work, serious work with um, graduate students because our MFA program is really quite well known. Um, And then we realized we had this real need area to serve. Okay. So we created this program for undergraduates. Um, And I, it was all positive. It was a wonderful experience, but we did get some weird initial reactions. And that's what sort of started me thinking about. And people who thought, well, why are you doing that? Because there are people who think, um, who um, incorrectly think that your undergraduate degree should link to a really easily defined job, right? Okay. Whereas we know being able to write is desire, being able to write means that you're going to be able to solve problems in a way that's very, very different than anyone else with any other kind of training. Right. And so you can be deployed in almost any kind of environment, uh, any kind of professional environment. Uh, Problem solving is our superpower. Right. Um, uh, So. That initial that sort of semi negative reactions just from a couple of people really got me thinking. I said, well, what what if we did just want to do a money grab? Right. Yeah. Well, then why don't I write about all these things that I've been thinking about all my life? And put them together with a kind of commercial shared interest in this in this creative writing, this crime writing program, right? Yeah. Which at first I thought was a huge joke, joke and laugh. Everybody yeah. thought it was going to be a cozy series. Right? <laughs> Sorry, that is yeah. not a cozy no, series. <laughs> first book mock-up, you know, uh, yeah, clearly showed me that people thought it was a cozy series. So uh, <laughs> the book first cover mock-up. Uh, but no, it turned out to be really quite dark yeah. because... I wanted to write about Ohio as a really gothic place, okay. right? Which I don't think is the first thing people think about, you know. Oh. But I wanted to write about it as a gothic place and really sort of play around with as many uh, plausible monsters as I could. Yeah. <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. No, it does. It. It. I. I understand just how so, your surroundings and how it all came together. So today, I I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, today is uh, June 7th, and it is the um, debut day for one of our BFA, for one of our former BFA students, um, Andrew Joseph White, um, and we're so excited uh, with Hell Followed With Me. It's the number one uh, debut release today in teen and young adult monster fiction. So Andrew Joseph White. So, um, and we're just really, really proud of that because, you know, it sort of validates the BFA, even though, uh, even though he would have gone on to do great things, even without us, we created the space for it. You know, we created the structure for it. Sometimes all you need is to sort of like walk into a room full of people who agree that what you're doing is, is good, you know, it's good and valid and you're not just wasting time, you know? So, very happy about that. And what I find now, I don't know uh, in the U.S. if you have this situation. Why I'm I'm really glad you're doing this is because I find uh, in my country in Canada, when there are cutbacks, it's the theater, yeah. it's the drama, it's the band, it's the music mm-hmm. that's getting the cuts. Right. It's not the sports. Nope. And I 
and I, I'm controlling my frustration, you know, and it's like, not everyone wants to play hockey. Okay. Like in literally in a province in this country, hockey is like a religion. Okay. And, um, not everyone wants to play hockey, play sports. Some of us like to create art, like to write. And it's just, and what gives me hope though, is when I see um, musicians like Sarah McLaughlin, she has like started up her own like music school, you know, mm-hmm. and providing instruments to students. And it's, it's, yeah. Okay. So I will get off my soapbox, but that's no, no. what I mean. I'm, I'm well, here. Dolly Parton is, is doing so many yes. in, intense things for children's literacy and things like that. It's just amazing, you know, and I will say one bright spot here is that when we prepare the materials to propose the BFA at the outset, we had to present that to a a board of business people who run things at the university. Right. And we were most nervous about that. And, and every single one of them said, yes, this is a good thing. More writing is a good thing. It doesn't matter what kind it is. It's good. Yes. Okay. 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 So we got to go to your book. Yeah. 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 You're right. Sorry. You know, it's funny because before we were talking about uh, natural conversations, right? So, okay. We're here to talk about you and your book <laughs> and Blue Billy. And all right. Okay. So can you give like let's just get the standard question out of the way so our listeners know what Blue Billy is about. Okay. So Blue Billy, uh, as you mentioned, the third book in the series set in this fictional um uh prison college town in Ohio. Uh Blue Billy is basically, I mean, the, it's it's about a serial killer that no one believes in, right? That law enforcement doesn't believe in. But he has left at least one or two victims behind, he has left victims behind who say, no, he did this, or survivors behind. Um, and it is about these uh, three women who decide to try to make sure that people do know he's real because he has returned. It's uh, so almost in retirement mode, if you will. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so he has been largely a legendary creature that law enforcement just refuses to acknowledge. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, and, um, I'm almost scared to ask, what was your inspiration? (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, a lot of that comes from, uh, all the things that are happening in forensic genealogy and investigations now, um, not just the successes of it, you know, to find like the Golden State Killer, you know, that, those kinds of things, not just those big splashy successes, but also the um, the ways that it limits opportunity, yeah. right, for people to continue in this mode. We don't know if this is a bubble of serial killing that has just died down in a sense, anything like that. We don't know if it's just been replaced by a different kind of violence. Growing up in 80s, 70s Ohio, that's like the golden age of this stuff, yeah. right? Um, and so everybody, everybody was obsessed with serial killers. Everybody just like, it was like, and, you know, Hannibal Lecter was as much, you know, it's sort of like almost fan fiction of that. Right. Yeah, really yeah. weird. Um, but it was always in our lives and always something we thought about. Yeah. Um, and, um, so I foolishly said, oh, 
I really kind of want to write about a serial killer, <laughs> even though nobody else is doing it really right now, even though it's sort of petering out in a sense of, nah, you know what, this is the last, this is a challenge for me. I'm going to do that. Right. And now, of course, I've forgotten. Um, I've forgotten what your question actually was. Oh, no, yeah. just what was so the one of the other parts yeah. there. One of the other parts there is about uh, forensic genealogy. That's sort of interesting is how it's being used to crack previously cold cases. Good, right. Good. Um, and they're not finding, I mean, and they're finding a couple different things. Yes. They're able to link a lot of cases together as possibly being um, uh, possibly being the result of single actors. Right. Yeah. But they're also finding a lot of cases where it's just a one and done kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Right? Where they, yeah. they're finding people who just did this one thing once in their lives and then went back to live normally. And I think that's going to be fascinating as we learn more about that. Whoa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so having read your book, what, what sort of research was involved with it? Was it um, looking back in like um, previous cases or, you know? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I did more research for the first two books. Okay. I would say. So I think by the time I got to this book, I knew my town, my place, all that sort of thing. But I think um, largely the important research for the series had to do with learning about contemporary uh, corrections practice, right? Okay. Uh, so I do write a little bit about a women's facility in yeah. Chillicothe in this book. And I was looking into that because now years and years and years later, it appears to me that Ohio has actually really, um, been on the cutting edge of certain, um, advances in corrections, right? Okay. Yeah. So there is, you know, a women's facility that is sort of open. Families can come, children are playing in the room with their moms, things like that, you know, but there's also the advent of, um, uh, video visits as well. Okay. Right. Yeah. And how that is both good and bad. Right. Yeah. So prisoners who get video visits, they get better access to talking to people, but they don't get physical contact. Right. Yeah. Um, it would have been a major, a major benefit had we had video visits when I was uh, young trying to see my dad, because we had to drive four hours down. Yeah. Right. And four hours back because we couldn't afford to stay overnight somewhere. Right. Yeah. And then we have just a little bit of time with dad. Uh, so that was huge. So it was always a big production to go and see him. And we we're crazy about him. You know, we loved him. I was daddy's girl. Yeah. You know? um, so it wasn't like, you know, we had animosity or anything. We really, really missed him pretty bad. Yeah. Um, so had we had better, more frequent access, you know, yeah. it would have been a huge thing. And, 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 the, and the science is showing that, you know, this does affect recidivism and things like that when they have real contact with their families in women and men. Okay. 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 Now, the China angels. Oh, okay. yeah. Those, China, those angels, those statues. I'm not going to be able to look at any glass porcelain <laughs> angel again in the same light. <laughs> I thought right. of them as, as symbolism. Mm -hmm. What I liked with your character, Tara. Oh, my God. Seeing her progression through mm -hmm. your book. Um, in the beginning, I loved the scene where, you know, she's, she's turning the angels around. So they <laughs> face the wall. I loved that. Okay. And then later something else happens right. with these angels and Tara, mm -hmm. um, were the angels like a form of symbolism? It, what, why, why did you want it to include them? 
Besides the beautiful part of symbols, <laughs> the beautiful part about symbolism when you're writing fiction is that it the best thing for you to do is let it grow naturally, like a like a volunteer weed or something, right? Yeah. Um, so this came from a friend of mine whose uh, whose parents her her father was a guy who really really was not crazy about her mother's obsession with Santa Clauses. Okay. Yeah. So her mother filled the house with all kinds of Santa Claus stuff and all kinds of Christmas stuff year round. And her father was always saying, you know, if she goes first, I'm going to take all those Santas out in the backyard and I'm going to shoot them. <laughs> right. So that's one of those things that parked in the back of my head. And so when yeah. I started writing about this and I, you know, I, you probably have noticed that I really like writing about um, domestic spaces and wild spaces that border on the uncanny. Yeah. And so I wanted to combine uh, wildness with something that was completely not wild, right? Wow. And I, then angels occurred to me like, that's so pristine and so clean and everything, right? And I wanted these angels to be present at different stages during um, the existence of the space called the Magic River Cafe. Yeah. Uh, as it, it starts out as a really nice camp, but it's still rustic. So the angels are inappropriate in that rustic environment. As the Magic River Cafe sort of get, becomes dilapidated, they're still equally inappropriate in that environment, right? So you have constantly this sort of uh, pristine, and I felt like it, this sort of pristine object in a place where it was unnatural to have such a thing, yeah, right? That's cool. So yeah. I did feel like it, that allowed the angels to have a kind of almost magical glow about them, yeah, right? But what they symbolize, I have no idea. Okay. Okay. But I okay. accept that they are symbols. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> okay. I think they open a lot. Yeah. I am not. Okay. So you have like there's so many. There were so many. So much of your writing that I enjoyed. Just good, good writing. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to read this this these few sentences if you don't mind okay and I'm not going to give any real lead up to it I just want our listeners to enjoy it um we have our character Tara and she's having a conversation with a a person she knows his name is Drew okay and this is we're in Tara's point of view and so then Tara's thinking it was a great conversation One, where they were siblings and friends for once. That was nice until she told Drew too much. And all of a sudden, he turned into a sticky glass and a couple of fives on the bar like a magician. Bailed at the first whiff of her crazy. Like what an elegant way of saying and a visual way of saying he left the bar, right? Like I, 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 I thought, wow, I liked that. I really, really liked that. And I, bravo, bravo. So, so much. Talk, talk to me about that. Was that like, was that maybe a 2 a.m.? Oh, I got this idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I can't remember how that came about, but you know, Drew is, is uh, Tara's, uh, brother, yeah, and she Tara herself has undergone. Um, she is one of Blue Billy's survivors, yeah. and her trauma uh, is ongoing. Yeah. Trauma is ongoing, and so one of the things I wanted to illustrate there was the difference between how her immediate family 
uh, interacts with her and how then just one layer out, the cousins interact with her, right? So her immediate family want her to heal up already. Yeah. You know, even years later, they're still expecting her. And when she disappoints, it's a profound disappointment, yeah. right? And they don't want to engage with it anymore. And this is something I think you see quite a lot when you have somebody who's sort of damaged in the family. People want them to perform. If they aren't healthy, they at least want them to perform health, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, whereas who's the person in the book then who can actually take Tara on her own terms, completely on her own terms? It's her cousin, Crocus. Yeah. Crocus can have a conversation with Tara even when Tara is flipping in and out of um, stability and instability. Yeah. Right. And she doesn't change her tack. She doesn't change her attitude toward her cousin. I think that's one of those. It's one of the things I really wanted to write about too, is the concept of cousins. Okay. Right. You have so much that you share with them, yeah. but you're not in competition for your parents' love with them. No. Right. You have a lot of biology that you share with them yeah. and you have a lot of the same kind of experiences growing up, like, like the summer camp experience, things like that. So I thought, you know, that's a really special relationship. And that even when you're adults, you can be a kid with your cousin, yeah. you know, yeah. whereas the people a little bit closer to you, your siblings or your mom or your dad, they may have a very different uh, way of thinking about you, yeah. but your cousin will always remember that you're a kid. Yeah. You know, That's so true because our, I have, we have two daughters and my, on my husband's side, he has two boys and they were um, with my oldest and his youngest boy, they were in the same grade. Mm-hmm. So when we moved to Victoria, they were in the same classroom. And I remember uh, Mike, bless his heart. I remember Ashley was in the classroom and one of his friends made a, comment about Ashley being, you know, cute, hot or whatever it was. And Mike looked at his friends and said, Hey, that's my cousin, right? Like, just don't go there. (laughs) And it it just, he, he is, he's such a sweet, sweet boy. He's now a daddy, which just blows my mind. Anyways. (laughs) That's true. That if the, with cousins. Yeah. And, and still to this day, like she was saying, Oh, she's getting married. She's thinking about Mike inviting him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I thought, so I've always been like obsessed with the boxcar kids, you know? Yeah. Those kinds of things. And so I'm always thinking about what they would be like doing the same things grown up. Yeah. Right. So that was one of the things I was able to do in this book was to sort of bring those kids back together. So now we also have Colby, who is Tara's brother, and he's more (sighs) confrontational. Yeah, um, but he's probably has a slightly healthier attitude toward her and her apparent damage, her obvious damage, than her brother, her brother, her brother Drew, who's just sort of cut her out in a sense. Yeah. Okay. Now it's Colby, and is it Crocus? Crocus or... is the other cousin. Yeah. So oh, but we got the name it. Crocus. Yeah. Oh, I but... a presentation about um, some. I came a presentation to one of our larger classes. And I was talking at a creative writing presentation. I was talking about the book that I was working on currently. And as a result of that, because we had such a good conversation, I said, okay, we'll have a contest and you guys can name this character for me. And it was a Twitter contest. And one of the students uh, suggested Crocus because the the character's last name is Roe. And I thought that was funny because you can't get Crocuses in a row. (laughs) Right. So that came out, that came directly from working with my students and having them help me 
sort of do this naming stuff in a way. Cool. Well, the Tara comes from the fact that I know a lot of Taras and Taras, and okay. every single one of them is an excellent writer. Okay. You know, Tara Laskowski blurred up the book. Tara Campbell is a fantastic, especially short, weird fiction, things like that. Just And Tara Dwyer, who's the, the person who's, whose dad wanted to shoot all the Santa Clauses. These are all really influential Taras in my life. So. <laughs> well, the thing that I remember also is that scene where Colby and Crocus go to Tara's, like, really kind of run-down apartment. Mm-hmm. And the landlord comes out. And she's got a machete, you yeah. know, and she just, she looks at, at Crocus and goes, filth, you know, and you're, you're, I was just like, get out of there. <laughs> and she's like, walks closer, filth. And I just thought, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, I think you might have answered this. What I liked, because I said, I asked who is Blue Billy and you, you're mentioning about this right, legend. Right. But then they also mentioned about now, isn't it that what they refer to as the soil? Right. All right. So yeah. there is a there's a for contaminated soil, like in a place like I did. That's also another place where I did some research, obviously. Okay. Um, you know, I've seen these Coke ovens, these abandoned Coke ovens, you know, in the hillsides for a lot you know, my whole life. And um, and I don't know if you're familiar with them or if they have them there, but uh Coke ovens as in like Coke as in the, the drug? No, like Coke ovens, like the mineral. Coke. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they build these, ra- well, round um, ovens in the hillsides and they would they would process the Coke that way. Okay. Right? All right. And that that was like uh, 100, 100 years ago at least. Yeah. Um, but those Coke ovens still sort of exist in places uh, wow. in Ohio and, and also actually also in West Virginia too. Um, and they just they just left them in the, in the hillside. Um, so those things always bothered me. I thought, you know, why aren't there like crazy people living inside those things? You know, <laughs> you know yeah. that sort of thing. That, but also uh, as a result of that kind of industry, sometimes the soil can become contaminated, and this weird blue dirt will arise. It's poison dirt. It's contaminated dirt. It's, and um, also, it's where they call it's Prussian blue colored, right? But the term for the dirt is also called blue billy, which is, and that really lit me on fire when I discovered that. I thought, okay, this is it. I've got this amazing title and this amazing character. So what happens is that at one of the initial um, victim sites, dump sites, uh, is that the detectives discover some traces of this blue billy uh, at the dump site. And from there, there's a sort of telephone game where then that it becomes misinterpreted as the name of the serial killer that they've come up with, right? The nickname of the serial killer. And then it becomes the de facto name of it. And then it becomes the boogeyman, just as we started off with, right? Yeah. Um, But yeah, go ahead and um, Google Blue Billy and see see the images. It's fairly striking. I will Google Blue Billy and I will Google Coke ovens. Yeah, And and then my my spouse is going to say, Joe, what are you? (laughs) Had a, I've had a few conversations like that. That is right. Your search engines, yeah, right. Yeah. Writer search histories, yeah. It's always yeah. very. That's interesting. Okay. Now, the other scene. Now, I told my critique partner, and I told my sister as I was saying to them how I was reading your book, and I go, and there's this scene. I go where um, Tara 
is with a psychiatrist. She's a psychiatrist, or yeah, she's actually a fake, but yeah. Okay, um, Jonas. Yeah, Mary Jones. And, and she wants Tara to draw Blue Billy, mm-hmm. and the person who allegedly assaulted her, right? Like, because mm-hmm. you said it, it's like this legend, right? And I was telling my sister and critique partner, I said, and there's this scene. I go, so Tara is drawing these, you just know Tara's drawing these pictures. And then, um, you know, Jonas is one day says, we, we don't need any more sessions. And Tara's wondering why, right? And then um, the J- Jonas puts out all of the pictures and she says, I asked you to draw Blue Billy and what you have drawn me like I'm doing this right. Or, or images of yourself. Right. You know? And I was just like, <gasps> and when I told my sister and my friend that they all went, Oh, Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So how did that all come about? Well, I'm glad you pointed out that part because, um, you know, I think where I sort of veer away from the formula of a mystery or something like that, right, is that I do want to go and get pretty deep into some into some darker emotional territory. And what I wanted with this was that Mary Jonas is supposed to be, uh, she herself is the adult child of a serial killer. Yeah. Um, yeah and, uh, and she has made a name for herself writing sort of pop books about killers and murderers. This was very popular when I was growing up. I don't know if you remember all those nasty books at the, at the drugstore about serial killers and things like that. Um, and I wanted to be one of those people. And so her motivation here in working with Tara, who's like at her wits end in terms of trying to get help, she's been trying to take care of herself for quite some time because of her family um, sort of icing her out. But she is emotionally not very healthy at all. She's very dark. She's very gloomy. Um, She's living in very reduced circumstances. Uh, And she also is aware that she has probably been, probably her testimony probably put the wrong people away for her attack. Right. So there's a wrongful imprisonment that actually can't be recovered. Um, So Jonas sees an opportunity here. Uh, she's actually more motivated by getting some information that she can use, whether it's real or not about Blue Billy, right? So that she can sort of like grab onto that as a commodity for her. Um, And so she's not really trying to help Tara. She's trying to get something happening quick. Yeah. She's trying to, so she's not doing something healthy for Tara, right? And so, um, I thought that it would be a good idea to have that sort of bite her in a way, you know, to ultimately bite her. And and Tara's doing what she can, but this is probably very emotionally damaging work that that, that, uh, Jonas is trying to make her do very quickly, right? Push her to a memory, whether it's real or not, right? So I feel like Jonas is just as bad as any of the people who, any of the therapists who would create false memories, right? She's trying to shake the tree to get something that she can use out of it. And then what we have then is this extraordinary revelation that every image that Tara is able to recreate is so closely attached to herself, you know? Um, And then I'm hinting at something that, that gets revealed at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not giving anything away because I know when I was telling my daughter about that scene, you know, my husband's listening and he doesn't read fiction. Mm -hmm. 
And I told, I was telling them about this scene and my husband looks and he goes, so is Tara Blue Billy? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know yet. There we go. Right. You right. know, like he's like, his, you know, and so to get him interested, who uh, he is not a fiction reader. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, he, yeah, my, my, my husband is a poet and a science writer. Yeah. Uh, he's into physics. He's like the very, he's my first reader in my, in my novels. Okay. Because he hates fiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Thinking of that. That's good though. It is very I'm, good. I'm glad yeah. I got him. I got, got, got him asking the question. That's good. So then I'm thinking why fiction? Like, oh. have you ever thought of nonfiction or why fiction? I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, that's a, an amazing question. Um, I've always written fiction. I, I early on wrote a combination of uh, poetry and fiction. I actually started being published for flash fiction more than anything else. But my first major publication was a was a conventional, traditional literary short story. My first major, and, and that appeared in Plowshares a long time ago. Um, and then I moved into more experimental things because I wasn't really satisfied with uh, literary short stories, traditional ones. Yeah. Moved into more experimental things that were more of a combination and flash was getting it was a perfect storm, right? Digital publishing was coming, uh, becoming more acceptable. And Flash was really, for a long time, the, the coin of the realm there. They really wanted, you know, journals wanted nothing but Flash. For, you yeah. know, so I hit a sweet spot there. Yeah. Um, and then um, somewhere along the way, Dorothy Allison, the author of Bastard of a Carolina, she wrote me an email out of the blue wow. and said, I really like your stories and I'm taking, I'm printing them out and taking them to a tin house conference this summer when I go to teach workshops to show people how to write these kinds of things. Yeah. And that was just blew my mind. Right. So here I'm writing in between the zone of fiction and poetry. um, And then getting this validation from a hero basically. And then at that point is when I started thinking about longer forms. Right. Because through some loopy conversations and it's always by accident, I never get I never move forward because of a deliberate behavior. Right. I don't do things. Oh, I need to do this next because this will make me famous or something like that. (laughs) I only move forward when I try something really loopy and stupid. Um, And out of like weird conversations, I got hooked up with her agent. Oh, wow. An agent at her agency, an agent. And he's the one who started me thinking about writing longer works. Now, I never did form a professional relationship with him, but he did have these really generous um, messages to me about uh, about my writing, that what he liked about it, and that if I was producing any longer work, I should I should get back in touch and that sort of thing. And it took a long time. But at that point, I then started teaching myself how to do it now. Back to your question there, though, uh, why fiction? I think it's, you know, everyone in my family is obsessed with small, complicated work, right? So all the men channel that into um, car repair, uh, carpentry, um, and, you know, uh, golf, basically. (laughs) Repetitive, complicated work. And all the women do things like quilting, tatting. They're really expert at so many things. My mother uh, did beading for such a long time. She's 93 now, and it, it, it hurts for her to do that. So, But she, that's only been recently that she's not been able to do the beading. And so she sort of switched to reading like 
to switch to reading really complicated um, historical and scientific texts. <gasps> what you can get for free on Kindle, but the more complicated, the better, which yeah. strikes me as the same <laughs> kind yeah. of impulse in a way. So we all have a little bit of that obsession. And for me, I couldn't do any of those things. But when I started thinking about you know writing a novel, writing fiction, writing a novel, it's always about the next challenge, right? So when I wanted to start writing a mystery, I didn't start by writing one, a one-off. I said, okay, I'm going to write a series. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when I encounter some other writers who are sort of in my zone, like I'd say, you know, uh, women of a certain age who are writing novels right now, like, like, like they're teenagers or something. Right. Um, it's because nobody tells you about what an enormous and satisfying pleasure it is. Yeah be in a book and know that it's going to be a book, right? Yeah. Whether it's going to be published or not, to actually be there and know that it's going to turn out to be a thing, a whole thing. Yeah. Nobody teaches you that. Nobody reveals that secret, yeah. you know, yeah. of what it feels like to be making that thing. It must yeah. be like what, say, my grandfather and his brothers felt when they were building houses. They built all of the family's houses, right? Yeah. That you start with your foundation and you know, it's going to be a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I get right now. Um, That's why I have to continue doing it. Um, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, like, well, are you making a living off this? Are you making money off it? Well, you know, fiction writers don't really make a whole lot of money unless they're with a very big publisher, things like that. And who knows people who are producing the books are making money. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, that's sort of beside the point. I've got to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I got to do this. Yeah. And, and actually I had this exact conversation on the weekend, oh, right? Okay. you know, about um, the money aspect of it. And it's like my future son-in-law, bless him said, you know, <laughs> it's not always about the money. And I thought, yes. Right. You know, and yeah, good. We get you get a great deal of fulfillment out of this, and when a few people, you know, when people read, especially people reading as deeply as you have, all right, that's just really, really a a major reward for me. Yeah. Um, Because I think the questions that you've had are so incredibly thoughtful and really good close reading. I'm really excited to be able to talk about these things. Oh, good, good. Well, I have. (laughs) So I haven't ever written it. Well, no, I don't think I've, I've written. I'm still smiling when I think of people thought this might be a cozy. <laughs> but, you know, I live in, in this area in Fairfax, Virginia, or in this local area. There's a ton of cozy writers here. And they're, I'm friends with a lot of them. And it's a, like it's a cozy nest. So I think that might have also been influential there. But like Donna Andrews lives close by, um, yeah. um, you know, Barb Goffman lives close by. Yeah. Uh, just, just, these are sort of rock stars in the yeah. in, in the field, and it's an amazing place to be. So our um, our sisters in crime chapter is just really, which I belong to. I belong yeah. to. Yeah, isn't sisters that the best crime. organization ever? Oh, yeah, yeah, better than any other writers organization I've ever been a yes. part of. Yeah. You know, yeah. just amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, I think tying into why you write fiction, and like you said. Um, you were mentioning about the questions I've asked you and, and reading deeply. I found it was the littlest thing that made my day. This is when I still worked full time. Mm-hmm. And a coworker came up to me with her friend and her friend had read my first book. And she came up to me and she goes, Joanna, I got one thing to say about your book. And I'm like, 
Okay. Like I'm thinking, okay, Joe, put on your big girl pants and you're going to get some good critique here. Right. And uh, she goes, your heroine Jade, she never eats. Will (gasps) you throw her a burger or something? (laughs) (laughs) I just, I laughed, but But that's brilliant. That's brilliant feedback. Yeah. But you also know then that that reader has had that connection. Right? right. Like she's, she's with this character. So what I've been able to do is I worked that. I so worked that into the second book. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and she is, she's having fries and, and yeah. Okay. Do you ever get surprised at the kind of people who like your work the best? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, I do. And what made me feel, I've had a few male readers say they enjoyed the book mm-hmm. and it's written from totally from a female point of view you know um i i've also broken some of the rules with the second book and with the third book where i am like i write in the first person so i have broken rules where then there will be a complete chapter where it's from a different character's point of view Mm -hmm. and i will break the rules to try to get the best story out there okay right Right. And I also like, oh, sorry, there's one moment, please. Okay, we're back. And I, I've kind of forgotten my train of thought. I think it well, was- Well, I had asked about uh, <laughs> if you were surprised at, at some of the people who, the kind, the, perhaps even the demographic of people who read your work, yeah. you find out who really enjoy it most. Yeah, it's male readers. I've, I was surprised to find out, enjoy the book. And like I said, I will- Oh, yeah, I was mentioning about breaking the rules um, Mm -hmm, to get the best story. I also like giving the reader hints of stuff that's happening before my character. It happens to my characters. I love doing that. And I love reading that, too. You know, so, yeah. Easter eggs, that kind of thing you put in there. I I do that as often as I can because I I, really it just prompts me to keep going in a sense, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I have that same experience. Um, I did not expect that my most uh, expressive readers would be my friend's fathers. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Right? And, and also people with, uh, with whom I have like totally different political views and things like yeah. that. Right. So I feel like that's fortunate. It's, it's odd to encounter yeah. and try to answer to, Yeah. you know, when somebody that, you know, you've been, sort of trying to not uh, engage with for a while yells across the street. It's that they read your book and they really enjoyed it. It's like, okay, I'm the jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I forgive you now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've next question, Laura, actually I kind of got to what is next and what are, where can people find you like your social media, but first let's, let's start with what's next. Well, I am about five to 15 pages away from finishing a draft that my body won't let me finish, but it is, I think what you're going to find, and I I noticed about my friends who were able to write during lockdowns and things, I think you're going to find that a lot of um, books that have been written during that time are not unsurprisingly, um, uh, uh, not surprisingly, uh, have a dystopian flair to them, right? And I think that's true with mine that I've just finished, uh, that I'm finishing. It's called The Obituary Project. That's the working title. Oh, wow. Um, and I'll just give you the basic ludicrous logline here. And then it's about um, 
a boy who is coming of age during a time when people are being visited by the specters of their deceased loved ones. And after that visit, they, they're, they're not dying anymore. <gasps> and so we're getting to a kind of static population. Oh, All right. So I'm writing this in the near future, which is extremely difficult. Yeah. Again, I'm raising the stakes for myself. Right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned nonfiction before, and I'm thinking like, you know, I've always never wanted to write. I mean, I've always had a real problem with nonfiction and memoir and things like that. Just a terrible bias against it for whatever reason. And I just know that that's probably going to be creeping in my future as well. As soon as I don't like something, I have to engage with it, right? (laughs) Just make it mine and then change my mind about it. Uh, But this book, I'm really really excited about uh, Obituary Project. Um, I am, I don't know why I won't finish it. I know how it has to go. Okay. But there's something like physically preventing me from doing it. I think it'll, I think it'll, it'll, it'll come over the summer. That's fascinating. Okay. So I hope you come back and we talk about it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find you? Oh yeah. Okay. So um, pretty simple stuff here on Twitter. I'm Laura Ellen Scott. Yeah. Uh, Instagram. I'm Laura Ellen Scott with an L E S on the end L E S. So Laura Ellen Scott L E S. And Facebook, uh, if anybody wants to get me by email, um, I have an author page. It's Laura Ellen Scott, comma, author. And uh, that's, but I also have, oh, actually, my website is lauraellenscott.com. And if you, that's actually where you want to send me an email. Okay. Because I actually don't check the Facebook messages very often. Yeah, no. But I am online obsessively all the time. So, okay. Should Um, be able to raise me in one of many ways. And I have to say, make sure you put the Ellen in. Because I Googled first when I was doing my research, Laura Scott, mm-hmm. and she is an author and she writes Christian books. And yep. that is so. Fireman romances, right? Doesn't yeah. It? And yeah. that is so completely opposite of what. I, that has happened. Okay. <laughs> so just... that the link to her stuff has been connected. Like if I'm going to go to an event, sometimes I'll pull that yeah. link. But yeah. yeah, the Ellen is important. The... I actually started as L.E. Scott. And then that turns out to be a poet, I believe, from South Africa. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with my name. (laughs) People tend to call me Laura Ellen, which when they, when they don't know me personally, but uh, that's there to sort of distinguish what I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. It's good. It's five letters, five letters, five letters. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This has been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Good. And I'm uh, fascinated by the work you're doing. So um, I I saw you tease. There was going to be some news coming up soon about the podcast. So I'm interested in that. I'll be be staying tuned. That's come down tonight. (laughs) Okay, fantastic. Okay, Laura. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.